slide up for me. See what we got. All right. 25 words. We're going to start with a test. Okay. Where'd they go? Oh, they're up there, but not there. Okay. 25 words. Do you know all of these words? Are there any of these words you don't know? Huh? Why? Watch. Oh, okay. So if, if, are there any of these words that are your favorite words on this list? What's your favorite word on this list? Who said cookie? So uh, that's a good word. Cookie. Bye-bye is your favorite word. Bye. Gotta go. She's antisocial. All right. What else? Cat. Cat's your favorite word? Thank you. Dog, I bet it is, Holly. I bet dog is your favorite word. Okay. Banana. Car? No. Yes, Gregory, I know no. Okay. Okay. This, this is a list of words that the average two-and-a-half-year-old should know. Now, there are some that are ahead of the curve, that know more words than that, and there's some that are a little behind the curve. It's, it's, it is what it is. This is just an average, according to Parenting Magazine, if you want to count that as a scientific source. Um, I wouldn't go that far. But that, so that's a list of words that they should know. And as I read that list of words, those top 25 words, there was one word on there that I have heard every two- and three-year-old ask me incessantly that I know they know, and yet, that word is not on there. What is it, do you think? Why? How many of you have ever been around a two-year-old or a three-year-old? Right? What do they ask you a lot? Why? They ask you the word, why? Well, why? There used to be a beer commercial that said, why ask why, right? Why? Why do they ask you Why? Because they want to know. They want to learn. They want to know an answer, right? They ask you why because they want to learn, because they don't understand. That's a, that's a great reason. Why else? Huh? They're knowledge sponges. That's true. They, they want to learn. What else? Is there any other reasons why you would ask why or why you're a child? To annoy you. To annoy you. What? You think they would ask just to annoy you? <laughs> To an, that's true. Oh, so they figure it out. So they ask it more because they know it bothers you. Okay. So they ask why to delay, you said, right? Delay what? The inevitable, right? Okay. They ask why because they don't know. Okay. You're right. As, as they get older, as we get older, the, the, the emphasis on why we ask why shifts from don't know to evaluation. We ask why in order to evaluate. Let me give you an example. If something, if my uh, girlfriend dumps me, which my wife might be happy about, but if my, <laughs> if, if my girlfriend dumps me and I didn't expect it, what's the first question? Why? What if, what if uh, my 
wife is asking me to do something I don't want to do, like till the garden. I ask why. Now, why do I ask why? It's not because I don't understand what it means to till a garden. It could be I'm stalling. It could be to be annoying. It could be whether or not I'm trying to evaluate whether or not what's being asked of me is something that I think I want to do. You know, Ann said that uh, they ask why to annoy you. <laughs> I think they also, teenagers also ask why because they are at the stage in their life where they're evaluating whether or not their parents are crazy and whether or not, Leah, you're not a teenager anymore. You can't say that. Um, they're evaluating whether or not what you're asking them to do is something that they want to do or they should do. Something funny about the word why, it's unique to humans. Humans are really the only species that, that asks that question. And you say, well, yeah, because we're the only ones that talk, okay? But, but, but we are. We're the only ones that do that with, with our, our actions and the way we approach things. How much of your DNA, don't answer teenagers, how much of your DNA do we share with chimpanzees? 90, 90, zero, Thursa says zero. Okay, scientifically speaking, we share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. Some of us more than others, but that's a whole, whole other discussion for another day. We share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees and, and they do not seek why. And, and the way we understand that is to say this, they do not seek explanations for causes or phenomena. They don't want to know why something happened. They just want to know how they work through it. They want to know what it is, but the why, the big question of why is exclusively a human thing. It is the thing that most of us, I think, struggle with. You know, the big questions in life are why do bad things happen to good people? Why are we here? Why does it have to keep raining, right? Why is one of those questions that's very unique to people. There, there's no other species that asks that question or tries to figure out why. They just accept what it is. It's hardwired in us. It's in our circuitry. We have billions of neurons firing around in our brains. Do you know how much... That of the energy we consume. So every time you eat a banana, CJ, a percentage, what percentage of that banana's energy goes to the firing neurons in your brain? Any guess? Caitlin. Okay. As a general rule, it's somewhere between 20 and 25%. Somewhere between 20 and 25% of all the energy your body burns is done here. Now, sometimes I think it's a little less in my case, but that is, that is unusual because compared to any other animal on the planet, their averages tend to be about, including chimpanzees, tend to be about 10% of the energy they use. So there's something going on up here that we are hardwired for, we are built that way. 
Now, I would like to think it's because we are built in the image of God, right? And I hope God's a thinker, right? I hope God does amazing things with his mind. I know he does, right? He created all of this, right? He thought it, he spoke it, and it happened. That's pretty powerful stuff, right? But 25% of what goes of the energy you burn, you burn in your head. You burn it in your head because you're wired that way to do that. You're wired that way. And so we are, as we're thinking and processing, have you ever overthought anything? Some of us overthink more often than others. If I had a nickel for every wife that just stared at her husband, I would be rich right now. If you overthink. So what triggers and why is one of those questions that we think about that nobody else does or nothing else does? What triggers you to ask why? Do you know? What triggers you to stop and ask why? Why did this happen or why this is going on? Or what triggers you to ask why? Yes, it's learning and evaluation, but there's two more things. Instances, moments, times, feelings, experiences that trigger you to ask why. And if you stop and think, when do you ask why? When in your life, when are those moments you ask why? Hmm? When you're sad, you ask why, right? When you don't understand... But it's more than just not understanding, I think, because that's the learning and the evaluation process. You know, if I don't understand, um, there are certain, I can't can't think of an example, there are certain instances in your life that happen that are inconsequential, and you don't ask why, you just accept them for what they are and you move on, right? But there are instances where you do stop and ask why, because they impact you, Hmm? When they don't make sense, but okay, let me let me just cut to the chase on this. They don't make there are two other drivers. We are psychology today says we are driven to ask why when we have a perception that we are deprived of something. When we have a perception of we've lost something that we should have or sh- or had, or that we've that we are not able to get to something we think we should get to. Let me give you an example. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, I I really believe that the fall, that Satan leveraged that concept of deprivation, of not being able to have something, in order to cause us to fall. Because if you consider the questions that he asked Adam and Eve, what did he ask them? Or what did he say to them? Do you know? Is that really what God said? Are you really going to die? Is there really a reason why he's telling you not to do this. I really think he was tapping into the notion of God was denying them something that they should have. They were being deprived something special. And so they asked, why? Why would I be deprived of that? Surely, surely, and Satan leveraged it. Surely this will not kill you. And it didn't immediately. Surely, right? But this notice, this this concept of deprivation that causes us to ask why can also be directly connected to when horrible things happen in our lives, when bad things happen, when we're diagnosed with cancer. One of our first questions is, why? Why me? 
I'm being deprived of life and time and energy and why? It's a deep question, right? Now, I think that that deprivation that, that causes us to ask why can also lead to wonderful things. I, I think that, that when we realize that we are missing something in our, our heart, in our, that hole in our heart that can only be filled by the Lord, that's, that's deprivation. We realize we're missing something, and it causes us to seek out, right? Hopefully, seek out the Lord and seek out Jesus Christ. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Why? The other reason we ask why is because we are uncertain about things. We are uncertain about how things work. Um, How many of you um, have tried to teach your child math in the last 10 years? Or your grandchild math in the last 10 years? Okay. As you're trying to teach your child math in the last 10 years, and they come home from school and they open their book and they show you the way that they do math, Okay, see, because, because I don't know about you, but as I opened my kid's math book two, year, two, three years ago, a third grade math book, I open it up and I'm like, what is this? I, th- this is not math. I have no idea what this is. Why would that be? Because I learned it differently, right? I learned my math differently. And so the, uh, the, the question that we come up with immediately is, why did you change this, right? This was perfectly good before. I got it. I can count without my fingers and toes, right? Although they are helpful for me. But I, I can count. I can do basic math. And I didn't have to do all this gobbledygook. And the kid says, well, that's, that's just the way I learn. And the, and the teachers, who honestly probably know better than us and have seen it both ways and have kept their minds open enough, could tell you honestly which one they prefer. I won't ask you to tell me right now because I don't want to put you on the spot, teachers. But if there are benefits to doing it this way, I bet they could tell you. If there are downsides, I bet they could tell you. But in my moment of frustration, I still ask, why did they change that? It's driving me nuts. Now, I think that, that this uncertainty, this, dri- driven, this concept of uncertainty driving why we ask why, I think can also, again, lead to good things. Why do people get sick? Why can't we heal them? Right? Leads to modern medicine, which is a miracle. It really is. I think that as we try to make scientific advances, and, I, and I'm here to tell you that I don't think there's, a, there's a, this battle that we have between faith and science, I think, is manufactured on so many levels. Um, I think it's, it's Satan trying to get at us. Because I don't know any, any of you who have had a loved one or yourself who has survived cancer, who has been through heart surgery, who has done those things, would you... Would you would you assert that those weren't miracles? Would you assert that God's hand was not upon it? God's hand was and is. 
I think God gets excited when we explore, when we ask the why questions. Because when God made the earth, he made it all good, right? It's a repeated phrase throughout the first two parts of Genesis is he created the earth, the earth and the land. He separated the oceans from above and the oceans below, and and it was good, right? He put the stars in the sky and saw that it was good. You hear what I'm saying here? It's good. It's all good. There's so much goodness in the way God designed the world. I think God gets excited when we try to explore that. I really do. I think he wants us to be in awe and wonder of his greatness. I think he wants us to be in awe and wonder. And I don't know about you, but the more I understand of how things work, the more in awe I am that it all works the way it does. I think God hardwired us to ask why because it's what drives our curiosity. It's what drives our pursuit of him because if we feel like we're missing something, we will drive toward it. It's what drives our pursuit of trying to understand the world around us. Why has a purpose and why has a value? And why is the question that we often ask that we, need, that we feel like we need answered before we will make a decision to move forward really with anything in our lives. The older we get, the more we want to know why before we do something. The more we want to know why before, some, before we decide whether or not something is good or bad, should I decide this is good or bad? Why? We ask why, because we're evaluating. Is it good for me? Is it good for the world? Sometimes we ask why because we're evaluating what's in it for me, right? But we ask why. We always will, and there's no getting around that. And so that's why this series. This week, we're going to talk about a question that I think a lot of people ask that don't know the Lord, and it's why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Or more importantly, why couldn't God just forgive us? Why couldn't he just forgive us? Because it would have been in his capacity to do that. It could. I, I guess he could. But there are reasons why he didn't. Because I gotta tell you, from the outside looking in, The math involved with Jesus dying on the cross doesn't make sense. It really doesn't add up. It's one of the the reasons why Paul says to the Corinthians that that to the Gentiles, this, this notion of Jesus dying on the cross, this is foolishness. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. But then he also says to those who are being saved is the very wisdom of God, is the very power of God. That's a pretty big transition, from this doesn't make any sense to this makes all the sense in the world. If, let me, let me pose a, a, a concept to you. If someone was in a, a court of law and they had murdered 20 people, right? And their mom came forward and said, hey, take me instead of my son, Number one, we might say to the mom, you love your son, right? You love your son and you're willing to take the punishment for him. But would that be 
just. Would that be right? Would that make things right? No. We tell our kids all the time that two wrongs don't make a right. When kids fight in school or they argue or they punch each other and your kid hits the other one back, there's a little part of me that goes, good on you. But we tell our kids that two wrongs make a right. You be, And it's true. Me being nasty back doesn't make your being nasty okay. It doesn't make it all make sense. Two wrongs don't make a right. So when we're talking about the cross, when we're talking about God allowing his son to suffer and die because of our wrongs, how do two wrongs make a right? The math doesn't add up. Would you agree? In the way we look at the world, the math doesn't add up. Now, look, I clearly believe the math does add up. right? So let me preface it with that. I think it does, but I do think it also requires us to dig into more of why, to ask ourselves how things could be working in a way that we do not understand, and why did it have to work out that way? You know, certainty, and some of it, I will tell you up front, is faith. Certainty, having certainty that God is God and that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior means sometimes I have to accept uncertainty for me. I have to be willing to say I will not know all the answers. Do you know all the answers? Because I'll be really impressed if you do, and then we'll go pray, because you don't. (laughs) None of us know all the answers. None of us do. So, The question would be this, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why could he not just forgive us? And I think there are two things that we need to understand in order to have this make sense, okay? The first is this, is the sin problem. What is a sin? Do you know what a sin is? Disobedience? I would say, we'll keep it simple, sin is a violation of what is right, A sin is not doing what is right. It is violating God's laws. And the truth is, we sin daily. How many of you sped to get here? (laughs) I appreciate that honesty. You realize that every time you speed, you are violating the law, okay? And I shouldn't say you. Every time we speed, we are choosing to violate the law, and in some ways, we are choosing to sin. I, th- I, think, I think this is where one of the big disconnects lies between, hopefully, what we know as we come to the Lord and what we didn't know before we came to the Lord, and that's that sin um, has a bigger cost than we know of. Sin is something that we can identify, we can point out, and we're really good at pointing it out in others before we point it out in ourselves, just so we're clear about that. We're very good at that. It's called deflection. It's a whole other (laughs) discussion, or that might not be the right term. Is that the right term? Okay, good. Rock on. That's why Tracy's trained. She tells me these things. 
So we are very good at pointing it out in each other, but I, I, I think that we do not always really understand there's a disconnect between knowing we are broken and believing that our sinfulness, our brokenness matters because it does. It matters. And there's a disconnect there. When I was, um, you know, most, we're going to hear about one of my driving exploits because, you know, me and cars, bad mojo. So when I was 16, I get in this, I, I decide that I want to glide down a hill in my car. I want to see if I can make the turn at the bottom of the hill. Yeah, because I'm smart like that. So I put the car in neutral, and as I start rolling down the hill, it's, I'm doing zero, and I'm just like, I'm just going to go, and let's see what happens, and it slowly speeds up. One, five, 10, 20, 25, 30, 35. I had a digital speedometer, so it's easy to read. The last time I remember seeing the speedometer, it said 45 miles an hour. And I'm coming up on this hill at the bottom. And there was a split second with me that said, should I tap the brakes? Did I tap the brakes? No, because I thought I could make it. I, I, I was a teenager. I was invincible, right? I could make this turn. I didn't make the turn, just so we're clear about that. This was a Friday night, about 10 o'clock. I didn't make this turn. And I pull back up the street with my front end smoking because I hit a mailbox. I could have hit the fire hydrant. I was better off with the mailbox. So I, I limped my car back up the street smoking to my friend's house, and I put it in his driveway. And his mom, who's upstairs on, like, the third floor, calls down and goes, is that Rob? Because she's known me since I was this big. And she goes, tell him he's not allowed to speed on this street. I'm like, I, I don't think it's going to be a problem anymore. But... What went through my mind immediately was, okay, it's Friday night, it's 10 o'clock, I can go to a body shop in the morning, and they can have it fixed by five, and my mom will never know. Right? I don't have to tell her. Did that work out? At some point, probably, I would say 30 minutes later, I realized that's not going to happen. There is no way I can make this right that quickly or at all because the truth is the damage I did to that car, you're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. I, can, I don't have the money for that. I've got a job, yes, but I have neither the time nor the money to fix that. So then I had to call my parents. Worst ride of my life. No, that was not a fun conversation. Neither was my dad getting me up at 4.30 the next morning and saying, I've already been back over to the accident site and you did not clean up what you should have cleaned up. So get up, you're gonna go clean it up. I don't think he slept that night, but I, I needed that lesson. But the point would be, I did something that there's no way I could have fixed. No way. I didn't have the resources. I didn't have the time. I didn't have the money. 
I didn't have the knowledge. I could not have fixed that. And I want us to understand that our sin problem is that big. It is not something that we can fix. The problem with sin is that it tramples on the glory of God. Because as we said before, God made everything good. God made everything wonderful. I was having a talk with one of the teenagers out in the lobby today. I said, you are really good at greeting and leading people. You are so awesome. And they said, well, yeah, I was born that way. You're right. God does not make junk. Okay? Keep this in mind. God doesn't make garbage. What God makes is good. And in the case of us, it is very good. We are designed, we are intended, we are designed to be a reflection of who he is. And every time we sin, we trample upon that reflection. We trample upon what it means to reflect the things of God. And yes, this is an intense one because I want you to hear it. I try to be very, very encouraging. But in this case, I, 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 I tried all week to figure out a way to soft coat this, but I can't get around it. Every time we sin, every time we make a choice to do something we know we shouldn't do, every time we violate what is right, every time you scream at somebody you shouldn't scream at, because we've all done it, every time we choose to speed, every time we make a decision we know not to be the right decision, we trample on that reflection, on the image of God that he has planted within each and every one of us, and there is no way to pay that back. We do not have the money. Can't buy your way into heaven. We do not have the time. We do not have the knowledge. We do not have the ability. We can't do it. And I think it's, I think it's important that we understand that First as believers, because sometimes we make a choice to follow the Lord without really understanding all there is to it, and that's normal. You get married without really knowing everything that's going to happen after you get married. Probably because if you knew everything that was going to happen after you got married, you might not get married, right? We have kids without knowing everything that's going to happen after we have kids, because if we had the list right in front of us, if you had to list the number of dirty diapers I was going to have to clean up, that might be enough for me to go, nope, not going to happen. I want us to understand that it's okay to enter a relationship with God trusting the Lord, but there's always more to learn along the way. You did not know everything when you got here, and you probably won't know everything when you die, because I certainly don't because he defies our understanding. He's bigger than anything our little brain can handle. But this, this notion that sin is that big of a problem, our, our source text for today is Romans 6.23, and it says the wages of sin are death. Our failings, there, there, there really is no way to get out of this because we cannot restore what we have taken from God. We cannot restore it. And so the logical outcome is death. There's no other way around that. 
you can't pay it back. Now, that should also be, for those of you who judge your, the veracity of your faith based on how much work you're doing, you should understand you cannot earn God's favor because we'll get to this in a minute. If you are following him, you already have his favor and you cannot earn it. We don't do the things we do to make God happy with us. We do the things we do because God is happy with us. When honestly, based on our sin problem, he has no reason to be or no obligation to be. So I want us to clearly understand that. Is sin a problem? Okay. It is an insurmountable problem. It is something that we cannot overcome. So why Jesus? Why, why, why does that help fix the problem? Well, the answer is simple. Jesus, in contrast to us, is sinless. He has no sin. The Scriptures say he, or 1 Peter 2.22 says, who committed, he is who committed no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The reason it would be okay for God to send his son for our sins, our transgressions, when it wouldn't be okay for a human judge to do that, is that God's sacrifice of his son returns that glory to him in a way that we could never do. If a mom were to put herself in her son's place and so that her son could live and son could survive, she's not returning glory or restoring what was taken. If her son is a murderer, her doing that does not bring the murdered people back. Her doing that would bring glory to her son because it would allow him to be freed. It would allow him to return to a life, but it certainly doesn't solve the problem of who was wronged, right? It doesn't bring people back to life. Funny, Jesus, by sacrificing himself, brings all of us back to life. His choice, the reason that it would not be, the reason it doesn't make sense to you if you do not know the Lord is this, is you're reading it into it, what we feel and what we know as human beings. And from our broken perspective, that means we're going to see it incorrectly. We're going to assume motivations that are not God's motivations because His ways are greater than our ways, right? His capacity to love is greater than our capacity to love. The key with Jesus' death is Jesus, is Jesus dying on a cross is the only way that the glory of God could be returned to him because you and I can't do that. We cannot give back that. We cannot restore that. It's the car wreck we can't pay for. But Jesus can So why him? That's why. He's the only one who could repay that debt. So what else do we need to understand about why Jesus died? Well, the next one is the reconciliation requirement. And for there, we're going to talk about two big words that um, I don't like to use, but we're going to use them anyways because I can't think of a better way to do it, all right? Expiation and pro propitiation. 
you're going, really? Right? You're going, what is that? I got you. Don't, we'll get there, okay? Because I do the same thing. Expiation is, means to make amends. Let me put it in context for you. In uh, Exodus chapter 32, verses 30, verse 30, when Moses has just come down off, the Mount, off Mount Sinai and Aaron and his, his, his family and, and, and the people of God have made this golden calf, right? And Moses is mad as a hornet because he's like, I left you for what, 40 days, right? I come back and y'all are worshiping a golden cow. You know, the place where I went to seminary, do you know what their mascot was? So it was a bison. Do you know what their colors were? Black and gold. Does anybody see the irony there? I always did. All right, so anyways, it says, on the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, right? And now I'm going up to the Lord, perhaps I can make an expiation for an expiation an expiation for your sin. Perhaps I can make amends. Perhaps I can make it okay. Okay? So an expiation is simply this, it's simply making things okay. Now, we've decided that we can't do that. We cannot be an expiation for our own sin, but Jesus can, right? But Jesus does something else. Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. And you say, well, okay, let's talk about what that big word means. A propitiation is more than just making amends. Propitiation is making amends in such a way that it leads to a transformation. In this case, it leads to a transformation of God's view of us as his enemies to God's view of us as his children. Okay? Okay? Let me give you an example. Let's just say that I had the money and the, to repay from the car accident. Let's say I had the money to repay it all immediately. Let's say I bought or rented my parents a rental car so they wouldn't be inconvenienced. Let's say I, I, I don't know, paid them an extra stipend just because... Let's say I had everything I needed to have to make this problem act like, pretend like it never happened, right? I just expiated it. Does any of that keep my dad from being angry with me? Doesn't. Yes, I have found some miraculous way to solve the sin problem, maybe. But that doesn't change my dad's opinion of me. My dad loves me, by the way. I'm sure he was ready to throttle me that night, but he loves me, I think. I'm kidding. I know he does. But a propitiation, a propitiation is an act that doesn't just make it right. It's an act that transforms. It transforms God's perception of us into his perception of us being identical to the Son. Does that make sense? It is that thing, this reconciliation, this true reconciliation means that God has found a way that we cannot find. He has found a way to make it as though it really never happened. 
he didn't just make it right, he washed it away. As in, it never happened. It never happened. You, I want you to understand how big this is. I do, I want you to get this. For us to truly be in the presence of God, in the light of God, this, the glory of God, this glory that we've trampled, right? God cannot be in our presence if we are gonna continue to trample his glory, right? He can't do that because then he's imperfect and God is perfect. But by allowing Jesus to do this, he is... He has said, I'm going to make you like my son. I'm going to see you as though you are my son. I'm going to see you as though you are perfect. Now, come on. All the discussion, all the fights, all the arguments that we've, or the discussion we've just had about sinning and it being a problem and it being bad and it being horrible because it is. And God's just going to make this gone. Yeah, that should be a yes. That should be a cheer. Yes, it's going to make it gone. Thank you, Gregory. Gone. I, you, oh, wow. How can you all not be excited about this? Come on. All right. So it says in Romans 3, 22 through 25, it says, The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. Right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We just talked about that. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. And here's where we see our word. God presented him as a propitiation in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. This... this mind shift that God has, this emotional shift that God has. This is more than just accepting you. This is, this is embracing you. See, the, the problem that we have, have is we tend to look through it through our human eyes. Yes, if I make restitution for something I've done, it's, you probably are going to say, okay, I'm not mad at you anymore but are you going to love me? Is that suddenly going to change the entire way you see me if I make financial restitution for something? We can't grasp that fact with God. We struggle with the idea that God could just do that. That God could just say, yes, the price is paid. The phrase that I heard on Friday night, we were, Keith and I were at a men's conference, was you are blood-bought. You are blood-bought. That he, is, he has paid the price that you could not pay for you. That he has flipped his entire perspective of who you are from enemies of him to his children. Could you bring an enemy into your house and call him your child? Guess what God just did? Right? Through Jesus Christ, he takes his enemy and makes him his child, makes him family, 
brings him into his home, allows him access to his son, allows him access to his spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of wisdom and strength and truth and mercy and love and grace. He allows you access to that. I don't know about you, but I need that. I need all that I can get. Yes? What I, what, and, and so why, um, okay, I assume that most of all of this, most of us know, right? And you're going, why are you telling me this? I'm telling you this for two reasons. One, I think we need to remember because I think we forget. I think we forget just how forgiven we are sometimes. I think we forget just how big the transformation is, and we take it for granted. Do not take it for granted. <laughs> if you know the Lord, if you follow the Lord, you have been given a gift that is beyond anything you could possibly imagine. You've been given grace that is beyond anything you could possibly imagine, and you can experience love that is beyond anything you could possibly imagine. The other reason I tell you this is because if you have not chosen to follow the Lord yet, it's really hard to even fathom a God that would love this way. And if we can't tell that story, how are they going to know? If we can't say more than just, yeah, Jesus died for me on the cross, and so I'm forgiven. It's a great base. But if you can't tell somebody, I want you to understand what that means. If you can't say to them, I want you to have what I have. I want you to know that this is, this is not good. This sin thing, this is way more dangerous than you think it is. There's a way that a debt you cannot pay can be paid. If we can't tell people this with passion, with genuine heart, this is who we are and this is how blessed we are, they will never hear it. And I don't know about you, but I think they need to. I think they need to hear the love of Christ, to experience the love of Christ. And can I just tell you, it's only going to happen if we're telling people. And when I say we, I don't mean just Rob. If we are telling people who our Savior is, if we are stepping into their lives and trying to help them understand the gift we've been given and that they can have too, Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Okay. Um, I think that's all I've got. It's heavy enough. <laughs> As our source text says today, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It is a gift. So we end every service with a time of prayer. It is a time where we kind of take, it, take stock of some of the things that are on our hearts and minds. Some of us have, have uh, 
placed prayer requests in written form or, or, taken, or have their prayers taken before. You see a, a, somebody outside with a, a, a tablet that says prayer team on the back. That's your sign for uh, in, next time you come for uh, this person will pray for me, this person will write down my prayer. And you can choose whether or not you want that prayer announced or you want that prayer kept private. So the ones I'm going to read for you today are prayers that were are public. There are prayers that people have asked us to intercede on their behalf. And then I'm going to ask you all if there are any more prayers, anything that God has brought to your heart here as you sit here today. So are you ready? Let's stand up. Let's pray. Pray together. Our first prayer comes from Holly Morris. Her her uncle Mike is going to have neck surgery this week. She's not sure of the day or the time, but um, she's concerned for him. Would also like to pray for Daryl, who has uh, cancer. And of course, Holly would love for us to always pray for the troops. Absolutely. The babies have asked for continued prayer for Mark Albright. Uh, his quadruple bypass went well this past week. He is coming home soon. We would pray that he regains his strength. We would pray that he continues to heal. Um, I know the, the babies feel unable to help some because they're in the Carolinas and the rest of the family's here and that makes it very hard. You can't reach in and help. And so we have to trust that our prayers will intercede. Uh, Barb Culp has asked for prayer for comfort for her mom, for Bernice. It's my understanding hospice was called in this week. Um, I talk about Bernice a lot because I love Bernice to death. <laughs> um, if you have opportunity, go brighten her day because she will brighten yours as a woman of steadfast faith. But we pray for comfort for her in this time. And I will pray for comfort for Barb. If you have opportunity to reach out to Barb, please do. If you don't know her, Barb is a dynamo in service of the Lord. And she's also someone who feels very deeply. It's that compassion that we love about her. Um, Love her back if you can. I would ask for continued prayers this week for my daughter who's in Africa for the next seven weeks now. We're counting down until she gets back, or at least I am. Um, She's having a wonderful time, and the Lord is leading her all over the place. So I'm excited about that. Any other prayers? Yes. Your son, Bill. Okay. Okay. Okay, so Patty's son Bill is having back surgery. His understanding is he has a tumor in the back of it. They're going to do it in July, so we would pray for that, for the doctors and for healing, right? Yep, he's one of the ninja. Okay, the American ninja guy, yep, absolutely. They're going to go on vacation before that. Okay, okay. Anything else? Yeah. My mom's Oh, praise God, your mom's getting out of Green Hills? Okay, wonderful. I didn't know she was going to get out. We thought she was going to be there for good, right? That's a blessing and a half that she's getting home. Anything else? Yes. Lots of protein shakes in your future, Gregory. All right. 
What else? Yes. Uh huh. Already? Well, you know, we were just complaining about all the rain, but that may be a blessing if it showed the leak that fast, right? Okay. See? We can even be blessed in that. What else? Anything? Okay. Well, let us close in prayer then. Father God, we are so thankful for your love and your mercy and your grace. We have been, uh, today, we've studied what it means to be sinful in some ways. And, and I would imagine there are hearts of those here that are asking questions about themselves. Do they really understand the depth of the sin problem? Do they really understand that the decisions we make trample on your glory? I know that has convicted me all week, all week long it has left me going, oh my goodness. But we are also given hope, hope that you can solve the problem that we cannot. That you, in your infinite love and wisdom and strength, have made a way. That you've made this big word, you've made a propitiation, this atoning sacrifice that doesn't just make everything okay, but actually allows hearts and minds to be changed, most notably yours toward us. God, we are humbled by that. I pray that this week we will have opportunity to share with others the power that comes through your son, both in word and deed, that we will have the opportunity to reach out to others, to let them know of the grand gift that comes in salvation through Jesus Christ to know that their sins can be washed away, history gone, never happened, and be replaced with your love. Lord, we are your humble servants. We are thankful for all that you do and provide for us. We are thankful that we are able to meet together and we pray that we will have opportunity to do so again. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.